morning and welcome to the Guts and Glory, the Singapore General Hospital Gastroenterology and Hepatology Podcast. I'm Dylan. And I'm Ching Han. And I'm Andrew. And I'm pleased that uh, all you listeners are able to join us again in our podcast today where we provide in-depth practical discussion with our local experts from Singapore General Hospital. So today, again, we have a full house. So apart from me, Dylan and Ching Han, the usual crew, we have with us four medical students from Yong Lulin. And also, we have an external speaker for the first time in over 20 episodes. We have Dr. Sherilyn Fu from the Department of Colorectal Surgery. So, I'm just going to pass now the time to, to Dylan and Ching Han just to introduce our guests before we delve a bit further to finding out who all these individual guests are. So, today we have with us Dr. Sherilyn Fu. She's a Senior Consultant Colorectal Surgeon under the Department of Colorectal Surgery at Singapore General Hospital since 2012. She's also the Director of Pelvic Floor Disorders at SGH. She did her colorectal fellowship in Brisbane, Australia to pursue her interest in pelvic floor disorders as well as advanced laparoscopic colorectal surgery. Apart from speaking regularly at various local and international conferences, she also organizes annual public forums and campaigns in order to raise awareness on colorectal cancer as well as pelvic floor disorders in Singapore. Okay, so before I ask Sherilyn uh, some questions about uh, what she does, I'm just going to give this uh, opportunity to the medical students just to introduce themselves. So we have with us four Yong Lodin students. And so can you just uh, tell the listeners who you are um, and what level of training you are at at this point? Hi, I'm Amanda. I'm a year five medical student from Yong Lodin School of Medicine. Hi, my name is Ting Similar to Amanda, I'm a year five medical student from NUS. Hi, my name is Hon Wen. I'm also a NUS Yongluin medical student, year 5. Hello, I'm Sneha. I'm also a year 5 medical student from the Yongluin School of Medicine. Okay, great. So it's, it's nice to always have medical students uh, with us in our podcast. So uh, I'm sure they have plenty of questions to ask our, our special guest today. But let me kick things off by asking Sherilyn some questions on my own. So Sherilyn and I, we work together in the pelvic floor service in a Singapore General Hospital. And, and obviously, we're very excited because she is our first uh, external speaker. We've had um, members of our department in gastroenterology and hepatology the last 20 odd episodes. And this is it's always nice to have someone from uh, outside our department and just to show everyone how uh, integrated our multidisciplinary uh, system is. So Sherilyn, um, can you mm, tell us a I bit agree. more about, about what you do uh, in general? I mean, colorectal surgery is a huge field. Yeah. Uh, but what, what is your, your special skill, your superpower skills that you have? <laughs> superpower. Okay, I like that. Hi, Andrew. And uh, thanks, everyone. And thanks, uh, thanks to the medical students for the very kind introduction. Uh, I'm Sherilyn. I'm a colorectal surgeon. And uh, my subspeciality is actually in pelvic floor surgery. So I think a lot of people don't really understand what exactly is pelvic floor surgery. Um, most people understand colorectal surgeons are dealing with things like uh, colon cancer, rectal cancer, hemorrhoids. Uh, but my subspeciality is really also to deal with pelvic floor problems. Um, a lot of people associate pelvic floor problems with uh, the gynecologist or urogynecologist, but a uh, uh, patients, uh, laymen, as well as even doctors don't realize that actually pelvic floor problems involve uh, not just the uterus, the bladder, but also what we call the posterior compartment, which is uh, the rectum and the anus. So the pelvic floor, because it, it actually suspends and holds all these organs down below, um, when things happen to the front part, which is the bladder and the, the uterus, the same similar problems can also happen to the rectum uh, and the anus. Hence, uh, colorectal surgeons 
with the pelvic floor interest actually deal with things like uh, fecal incontinence, uh, pelvic uh, or rectal prolapse, or even constipation. So, well, I suppose uh, I I wasn't really into pelvic floor issues when I was even a, a medical student. In, in fact, actually, maybe just a show of hands, any of you have been taught anything about pelvic floor problems in med school? Nope, nope. I see everybody's like, no. Yeah, neither was I. I, I didn't know anything about pelvic floor issues as a medical student, even as, uh, I would say, as a registrar, medical officer. It's only as... um. I, we realized as I went on in my training that there was re really this particular niche. And so I did my fellowship in uh, pelvic floor uh, surgery in Australia. And I realized that actually um, that there's a lot out there to be learned and uh, to bring back to Singapore. Uh, pelvic floor issues are not well uh, thought in medical school and also not well spoken about in, in the community. So I think it's... Uh, thank you very much again for bringing me here and, and letting me share some of my insights. Okay, Sharon, then you, you mentioned that you did your fellowship training in Australia, mm. which is also where I did my fellowship training. So yeah, it seems to be a right. very popular place. It's, it's close enough, yet far it enough is. to get away from your relatives so it that they is. can't disturb you. So um, I, I, how did you find your experience in, in Australia when you did your training there? Oh, fantastic. I mean, not not really. I think the fantastic part is not so much the training, but the, just the ability to get away from what you're familiar with for one whole year and to integrate with another society for a year. Um, you realize that, of course, not everything about uh, another different hospital or another different practice is great. There are great things and there are not so good things. Uh, but you learn that that your own institution and where you work is not always the best. Uh, you, there's always things to take back. Um, and also, I, I always encourage all the medical students and even my trainees nowadays, even though it's, it's increasingly difficult to get a fellowship position, try your very best to get one, whether it's a paid fellowship or not. Because really, that one year overseas really opens your eyes to a lot. The second is when you are overseas, actually the stress is a lot less because you don't really care, right? Even if you sort of mess up, <laughs> you're never going to be there forever. So um, th there's a lot less stress uh, in in your day-to-day -day activity. You just go there, learn. And the great thing also is on the weekends, you literally just wash your hands off everything and just go out and play. <laughs> um, so Friday, like after 5 p.m. till Monday, like 8 a.m., literally you don't need to care about work at all. Yeah, of course, unless you're on call. Yeah, so it was a great time. And also, I mean, I, I, I had a very, um, I was very lucky in, in that my husband also did fellowship together with me at the same time in Brisbane in that one year. So we had an excellent time. And, and we made a lot of good friends uh, and keep in touch with a lot of them up to now. Uh, in fact, my mentor, um, who's Andrew Stevenson from Brisbane, um, up to now, I, every time he comes down to Singapore, I still have dinners with him. This is like 10 years ago because I was there 2013. So that was nine, 10 years ago. And, and up to now, I, I, th I think the, the, these overseas friendships that you make are absolutely, um, um, change you. Well, thanks, Sharon, for that. So I, I totally agree with her. I mean, 
uh, overseas fellowships is one thing. I did my fellowship in a place where my brother and my sister were. So it was a family ah, reunion. Exactly. Like, was, uh, Fantastic, <laughs> and I, right? I, almost, I almost never came back. I yeah. literally <laughs> almost never came Which back. Which part of Australia did you do it? I Andrew? did it in, in Melbourne. Ah, uh, yeah. It's, it's great. Very, very livable city. Very, okay. very, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. So, um, Dylan and Chinghan, so what case vignette do we have uh, to guide us into the topic today? But I think firstly, what, what is the topic? I, I realized we didn't even mention what topic we're doing today. So what's the topic and can you just lead us through the, the case vignette? I think we kind of uh, alluded to the topic earlier uh, with Dr. Sherilyn's introduction. So today we're actually going to talk about um, fecal incontinence and, and pelvic floor disorders. Yeah. So it's something that actually we are, we are honestly not very familiar with. Um, and so hopefully this, uh, this podcast episode would shed more light on it. So... Our patient today is Madam Tang Sai Lik, who is. Uh, <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that. That was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, always, uh, there's always a pun. The mm. 71 year old woman, uh, referred by her primary care physician for fecal incontinence. This has been going on for about a year and it is disrupting her social life. Therefore, she has decided to seek medical help for this. So, we would like to ask how common is uh, fecal incontinence in Singapore and how would we approach um, a patient that we see for the first time? Mm. Okay, so fecal incontinence actually is a lot more common than we think it is. Um, in a local study that we did uh, some years back, it was found to be about 4.7% incidence um, among both men and women in Singapore. So, that's actually fairly high. That means you think about it, 100 out of 100 people, about 5 people might have some degree of fecal incontinence. Of course, the the risk factors are age. So if you're more than 50 years old, you're at much higher risk. And women are three times more likely than men in having a fecal incontinence. But truly, this, this rate of 5% or this incidence of 5% could actually be a lot higher because how many people actually uh, come forth and admit that they have some leakages? So how we usually approach a patient uh, with fecal incontinence is number one, um, this is where social history actually plays an uh, important part because you need to find out in this patient uh, or, or this person who's seeing you, what is the social background? Is she mobile? Is she walking? Is she going line dancing with friends every day? Or is she does she just stay at home and sit at home all day long? Because if someone who is very active goes traveling and complains of fecal incontinence, that's probably something that you really want to deal with um, uh, more than someone who just spends most of the time willingly at home and can reach the toilet in like, you know, 30 seconds. Hi, doctors. May I just ask, what are the common causes of fecal incontinence in Singapore? Uh, I think in Singapore and versus the rest of the world, the causes of fecal incontinence are probably the same. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, women are three times more likely than men. This is because of um, the obstetric, I mean, because of obstetric reasons and as well as menopause. So we know that pregnancy and uh, delivery of babies, uh, especially, especially uh, natural vaginal delivery and assisted deliveries uh, are definitely a cause and can make uh, and can cause fecal incontinence. But usually this fecal incontinence in women doesn't manifest early on. It often happens only after they become menopausal. It means when they start hitting the late 40s to 50s. This is because when they're younger, even though there is some damage from um, the pregnancies of the pelvic floor, their muscles sort of compensate 
and they they can strengthen their muscles while they're still young. But the problem is um, ligaments, once they are weakened, they will never actually regain that tensile strength again, but muscles can. So what happens when they hit menopause and there's this sudden drop in the hormonal levels is that the muscles which were previously strengthened then start to set and the ligaments which were already weak remain weak and that's when the fecal incontinence starts to happen. So um, I think previous, uh, just now you were asking me other than uh, how do we approach a patient. So we first start off with, um, of course, asking them about their social circumstances and then we go on to uh, the medical history, the surgical history. Some pertinent things would be asking whether that previous uh, anal surgery before abdominal surgery, any surgery for hemorrhoids or fistulas that can cause damage to the anal sphincters. Um, and then third would be the obstetric history. So like I mentioned, obstetric um, complications and obstetric-related injuries um, are a high risk factor for developing fecal incontinence. So you need to ask how many babies have they had? Were they big babies? Um, did they have uh, natural normal vaginal deliveries or cesarean uh, section for uh, to deliver their babies? Did they have any um, tears, what we call oasis or obstetric associated uh, anal sphincter injuries as a result of the deliveries? What determines continence in a normal person? You know, what must work well together to produce continence for, for let's say, you know, myself or Cheng Han? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a, a good question. In fact, a lot of people don't even understand the physiology behind um, continence or control of uh, your bowels or, or uh, urine. So this continence actually uh, depends very much on uh, two broad aspects. One is the pelvic uh, pelvic floor, and the second is, or actually three areas, the pelvic floor, the rectum for fecal continence, and uh, the anal sphincter. So we can think of it, um, sometimes I, I teach my students to think of it in terms of like a, a reservoir and a dam. So the, the rectum is like the reservoir. The reservoir stores uh, liquid or stools, so that's the rectum. And the dam is the, the pelvic floor, and the anal sphincters, which act as like the gateway. Okay. So for the for this whole system and the reservoir dam to not spill out, the rectum must have good compliance and the rectum must be able to hold the stools well. So what goes uh, so the rectum must be able to expand uh, and con and hold in the stools so that it doesn't overflow, right? So that the, the reservoir doesn't overflow. That's one. Uh, things that can affect the rectum, uh, rectum's expansion and, and capacity will be things like previous surgery, um, if you had uh, surgery for, say, rectal cancer. So that reservoir is a lot smaller. Secondly, if we've had previous radiotherapy, for example, patients who have uh, commonly prostate cancer or cervical cancer who have had radiotherapy to the rectum, it ends up with the rectum being uh, very scarred and very hard. And so it cannot expand, it cannot hold in that stool. And uh, another thing that you must always remember is some patients actually have very liquid or runny stools. So their stools are not solid. Their stools are very liquid, liquid or runny, or it's very large volume. So anyone who has had um, like a bad bout of uh, gastroenteritis would know that even with normal uh, sphincters and normal pelvic floor, you would still run to the toilet. You might still leak. Why? Because the, the contents that are in the rectum 
is actually just too much. So that's one. Uh, so we 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 start off with that reservoir. After that reservoir, then we deal with the pelvic floor, right? The pelvic floor and the sphincters is that that dam. So the control of that uh, sphincters and the pelvic floor depends on muscles and nerves. So the muscles uh, of the pelvic floor will be the pelvic floor, uh, will be the levator ani muscles and the puborectalis. And the anal sphincter muscle itself consists of the internal and the external sphincter. So these, this group of muscles are in turn controlled by nerves, um, namely the pudendal nerve. And the pudendal nerve is in turn uh, supplied by the S3 and S4 nerves. So a lot of things that come into interplay and how incontinence comes about is when one or more of these uh, components uh, is disrupted. So we'll move on to the next segment of the case. Um, so we find out more information from her and we find that we find out that she actually has three children, all delivered vaginally and uh, all of them requiring episiotomies. She has no history of any spinal injury. Uh, she also has a background of long-standing diabetes and hypertension. So what is the association of uh, pregnancy and fecal incontinence and what part of the obstetric history is important to look out for? Mm. So as uh, you mentioned, this lady has had three children. All of them were delivered by normal vaginal delivery. And that's a very, very common history. Um, unfortunately, I, I tell um, a lot of my patients and a lot of the medical students and colleagues that unfortunately, as women, um, we are already, pregnancy is supposed to be a normal part of, you know, a, a woman's life, pregnancy and delivery, but it's not normal. It invariably causes some damage. Even the act of having and growing a baby who is four or five kg in, in that tummy for that nine months does inherent damage to the pelvic floor. Because imagine for almost one year, you're carrying this heavy load and this heavy load presses on those muscles below constantly day and night, as long as you're sitting, as long as you're standing. So this inherently causes some stretch of the pelvic floor and it can also cause some stretch of the, the pudendal nerve that lies along the pelvic floor. So the more pregnancies you have, unfortunately, the higher the risk of that inherent pelvic floor damage. The second thing, so pregnancy itself is one. The second thing, obviously, is the delivery, the mode of delivery. Although we know that, um, although it hasn't been actually proven that a cesarean section actually uh, reduces the risk of fecal incontinence, we know that difficult deliveries, difficult vaginal deliveries, for example, requiring assisted deliveries like forceps deliveries or uh, vacuum deliveries, all predisposed to having fecal, uh, to, to a lady developing fecal incontinence in future. It does, all this means that when it is difficult to push the baby out, when the baby is difficult uh, labor and the, and the baby takes a long time to get out of that birth canal, it causes definitely damage to either or both the pelvic floor muscle, the anal sphincter muscle, as well as the nerve as, as the baby is passing through. And some of this is reversible, but sometimes this, this is not. So um, the important part is to, to find out from the lady if there's any history of these difficult deliveries like uh, forceps 
or uh, vacuum deliveries, and more importantly, whether or not they've had uh, a known obstetric-associated injury, like a sphincter injury. So sphincter injuries are grade, graded one to four. Um, a lot of patients won't know, but you might be able to ask them, did the doctor tell you that after your delivery, you had a bad tear that required some stitching? And immediately after your delivery, did you have any problems controlling your stools? So if you phrase it that way, patients might remember it. If you ask them, did you have a sphincter tear or sphincter injury? They'll stare at you and they're like, oh, I, I don't really know. I'm not sure. Yeah, so, so what I learned from Sherilyn in that entire segment that she just mentioned is that all we worthless men have to realize <laughs> what, what, yeah, what we go through. Yeah, what, what the sacrifices that our, our spouses <laughs> uh, put themselves at the, put and their pelvic floors in line just to bring life into this world. Yeah, uh, forever, you know. Yeah, I'll thank give you. a shout out to my wife. If my wife is listening to this. I say thank you for <laughs> risking your pelvic floor. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Sherilyn. Yeah, hi. Um, we know that uh, diabetes is associated with neuropathies. Is it common to see fecal incontinence in diabetic patients? Or why are diabetic patients at risk? Right. Well, I, I would say generally, um, it depends on uh, what type of uh, patient society, that, uh, what type of society you're looking at. In Singapore, we know that diabetes is extremely common. Almost like uh, 50-60% of patients that you see above the age of 50 uh, probably have some degree of diabetes. So to say that there's a direct correlation between diabetes and fecal incontinence is a bit hard to place. Um, how diabetes can cause fecal incontinence is that we know that uh, diabetes causes microvascular disease and hence, as a result, causes some degree of neuropathy. Um, and because of this neuropathy to the end uh, uh, nerves, it can cause weakening of that um, of the anal sphincter um, because of the, such neuropathies. But it is difficult to actually identify: is this weakening of the anal sphincter is it related to diabetes specifically, or is it just related to aging process? Is it related to menopause causing some weakening of the anal sphincter? I don't know of any specific test that actually proves that the the neuropathy is that the weakening of or the weakness of the anal sphincter can be proven to be due to the neuropathy from diabetes. So the long and short is I would say I wouldn't really focus on diabetes as the main cause of fecal incontinence. I, I think other causes that are more obvious would be like you mentioned obstetric uh, causes uh, and um, even things like spinal cord problems and spinal cord lesions that can uh, that are related to fecal incontinence. So how do we determine the severity for patients with fecal incontinence? Are there specific scoring systems that we use? Uh, yes, there is actually, we, we know that actually scoring systems are not very useful in, in determining the exact, uh, it, it doesn't ex exactly tell us if you score above a certain number, for example, you need to go for surgery. Uh, or you score below a certain number means uh, you you just have medications. It doesn't quite work that way. So scoring systems are actually to determine as a baseline how severe the fecal incontinence is so that after you institute some form of treatment, whether it is uh, surgical or non-surgical, you then score the patient again to see whether there is a subjective or rather objective improvement. So one of the, the, there are many scoring systems. One of the more common ones we use is something called the Wexner incontinence scale, which is uh, scaled from zero to 20. 
It's actually quite fairly simple to remember. There are five, uh, five categories. So the five categories are uh, leakage to stool, solid stool, leakage to liquid stool, and incontinence or leakage to flatus. And the other two would be whether the patient needs to wear a pad. And the last would be whether the incontinence affects the quality of life. So five categories. And these five categories have uh, a scored zero to four. Zero is if they do not leak at all. And four is if they leak every day. Then in between one, two, and three would be whether they leak uh, rarely a few times a year, whether they leak monthly, weekly, or daily. So five times four equals 20, so zero out of 20. So, so this is a fairly simple uh, uh, score that you can uh, quickly calculate. What this helps us is that we score, for example, a patient has an incontinence score of, say, 18 out of 20. This just tells us that it really affects the quality of life and probably something needs to be done. doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a surgery, but something needs to be done. And then we institute some form of treatment say six months down the road, we repeat that score and see whether there's any improvement. So this gives us a better subjective idea of whether or not the incontinence has improved. There are also other scores such as uh, QOL or quality of life scores, which more or less is the same thing. It tells us whether there's any improvement in quality of life after instituting treatment. So one of the very important steps in an evaluation of a patient with fecal incontinence is a digital rectal examination. Mm. It's quite challenging to describe a digital rectal examination over an audio recording or a podcast, but mm -hmm. bring our listeners through what you would evaluate and how you would do it. So, okay. so Sharon, I think before we uh, let you answer that question, I'm just <laughs> going to ask one of the students, because I think digital rectal examinations, you know, those things that uh, it's not taught well, it's, sometimes it's not even taught at all. So, uh, Sneha, so I just want to ask you, as a, your experience, you're, I mean, you're about to become a junior doctor, right? You're, you're months away from becoming one of us. right? So, what do you know about doing a digital rectal examination? Okay, so, um, I think all I know is how to prepare to do it and then what to look out for. So, non-sterile gloves, some look ask the patient to... Um, bring their knees up to their chest and uh, inspect the external area, look for the prostate, the size, the symmetry, any nodules, and then uh, withdraw the finger, look at any, uh, look for any uh, fecal impaction, any blood or any mucus. Yeah. Okay, thanks, thanks, Niha. So that sounds reasonably uh, what a medical student's experience um, yeah. is. Let me just pass the time to Sharon. She'll, she'll teach you the gold standard <laughs> of what a golden finger feel, sounds like. Okay. Feels like, feels like. <laughs> so I think the a digital rectal examination specifically for to, to check a patient for fecal incontinence uh, needs to be a little bit more detailed before you even touch the patient. One thing that is quite important is to actually inspect the, the perianal region. So some of the telltale signs that... Um, that tells you that a patient has fecal incontinence would be, especially in the Asian context, uh, if you see a tissue paper that's stuck on the uh, on the patient's uh, anus, then you know that something is wrong, right? It means that the patient has some leaks that the patient doesn't want to stain the underwear. So that's number one telltale sign. Number two is when you remove that tissue paper or if the patient is wearing a pair and you see that there's some fecal stains 
around the anus, um, around the perianal region, that's a, a, a second telltale sign because normal in a patient with full normal continence, that shouldn't happen unless the patient doesn't clean at all after passing stools. Uh, second would be to see whether there's any excorations around the anal uh, skin. So if there are excorations, that also suggests that there has been long-standing fecal uh, staining or, or fecal uh, uh, residue around the anal skin. Uh, next thing is to see if there is something called uh, anal, whether the anus, uh, there is the furrows, normal anal furrows, or whether or not the anus is actually widely gaping and you can see a, a hole staring in front of you. So if you see this big hole, and you see the anus, actually that's not normal. Okay, you shouldn't be able to see a black hole in the middle. All you should see in a normal, uh, in a patient with a normal anal sphincter is that you see a small little star-shaped thing. You see a small little dimple in the center. You don't see any hole. And you see some furrows at the anal skin. That means that the anal, the internal anal sphincter at rest is actually working well. But when you see it gaping and wide, it means that there's something wrong. So then we start off, then after that, we actually, before you even put your finger inside, I usually ask the patient to try and strain down and try and bear down like they want to pass stools. And that tells us a lot. It tells us two things. Number one, if they bear down and strain down and straight away you see stools coming out, then you know that has confirmed that the patient has some degree of incontinence. Um, you may also notice things like full thickness, rectal prolapse, or partial thickness rectal prolapse is the patient strains down and we see mucosa or even worse still, the whole rectum coming out of the anus. Then that's uh, very pertinent. One more thing that you will see is something called perineal descent. So I know it's a bit hard to describe this over a podcast, but if, you, if a patient tries to strain down and bear down and you see the whole backside or the whole buttock sinking downwards uh, of 2 to 4 cm or more, that's not normal. Usually, there'll be some descent. That means there'll be some sinking down of the, of the center of the anus, but not too much, not below the ischial uh, tuberosities. But if the whole perineum sinks down to below the level of the ischial tuberosities, that means that the pelvic floor is inherently weak. So after you've done all that homework, you then stick a finger into the, to the anus and you want to feel the anal tone. So we can't describe anal tone over, over a podcast, but you can grade it over five. So something very easy to do is five upon five means that if you feel that the anus is super tight around your, your, your finger and you can't take your finger out, so that's five upon five, right? If it's zero or one upon five means that you can put your finger in and out, in and out, and it's super weak. So that's, that's a very weak anal sphincter. And we grade it uh, at rest as well as squeeze, means that after I stick a finger in, at rest I grade it upon five, how strong the resting anal tone is. And then I ask the patient to use the anus to, to squeeze against my finger, just the anus muscles. And, and you'll find that actually a lot of patients don't actually understand and, and can't comprehend that when you ask them to squeeze their anus muscles against your finger. Then they use their whole tummy strength and buttock and, every, and thighs and squeeze everything, all the might against your finger. And then that's wrong. So you have to tell them, no, no, you have to relax all the rest of the muscles in your body. Just concentrate on using your anus muscles and squeeze them against your finger. Because we want to see 
the anal squeeze pressures and to see what the, the, the sphincter squeeze strength is like. And then you grade that upon five again. So after that, we ask, I, I usually will check to see whether there's something called a rectal seal. A rectal seal is when there is a bulge in the front wall of the rectum. And we grade the rectal seal uh, from one to three. One is if you can't really see the rectal seal below uh, uh, the level of the vaginal introitus. And three is when the rectal seal, or if you stick a finger through the anus, and then you can see your, your index finger right up through the posterior rectal, uh, posterior wall of the vagina. That's a great three rectal seal. So all those are signs of uh, a posterior compartment prolapse, which is a rectal seal. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, a rectal seal is one of the signs or one of the features of posterior compartment prolapse. So yeah, a bit more complicated than your usual DRE and just feeling the prostate. <laughs> um, even, I would say even a lot of um, colorectal surgeons themselves don't do all the things that I described because we're not always looking for fecal incontinence. Oh, thanks, Dr. Sheridan. I never knew there was so much to a, to a DRE. Yeah, that's right. So hopefully now we, we may pay more attention to a DRE. Um, so after doing the DRE, uh, we have also heard about things like anorectal physiology testing, uh, mm. which is not very well understood by many physicians and uh, medical, medical students may not actually even hear of it in, in med school. So could you describe to us what this process entails and what exactly are we measuring? Sure. So um, actually, not just medical students, a lot of my own colleagues don't even know what anorectal physiology is all about. I mean, I'll put it very simply. There's there's a lot to it, but I think to put it simply, there are two um two areas in anorectal or two or three areas in anorectal physiology that we want to look at. Uh, one is uh the um okay before we take it to anorectal physiology, I just take one step back. One thing that we do is try and look at the anatomy. So the anatomy of of the anal sphincter, because we want to see two aspects. One is the, the muscle anatomy, and then the other part that I talked about is the nerves, right? And the third part that I talked about is the pelvic floor area and whether there's any prolapse. So to look at the sphincters, the anatomy, we, we need to do an ultrasound. An ultrasound is probably the best way of looking at the anus muscles to see whether the anus muscles are complete or not. So that's what we call an endo-anal ultrasound, looking at the anal sphincters, in the internal and the external anal sphincters. So after that, then we look at the function or what we call the physiology of these anal sphincters. Uh, and one common thing that we do is something called manometry. Manometry basically is a pressure test. So we want to objectively see whether or not that how high or how low these anal pressures are. So when we do a digital rectal examination or DRE, we can subjectively grade it upon five, but we want something a bit more objective, you know, to prove to the patient and prove to other people um, how strong or how weak the anal sphincters are. And we actually put a pressure probe through the anus to test the, the anal pressures to see to, to see how many mmHg these anal pressures are. And we the normal, we have a normal range of pressures, so we can see whether or not the anal pressures at rest and during squeeze is normal or too high or too low. Another part of this anal rectal physiology is something called uh, rectal capacity. 
and rectal sensation. So as I mentioned previously, rectal sensation and rectal compliance is an important part of determining, uh, of, of controlling continence. During anal rectophysiology, we actually test, test things like uh, um, the minimum, the urge uh, rectal sensation and maximum rectal tolerance to see whether or not a patient is able to hold in or, or uh, feel the stools normally or whether the, the rectum is hypersensitive or hyposensitive. So for example, if a patient has very low urge um, rectal sensation, which means that if you put in a little bit of fluid into the rectum, like 20 or 30 mils, and the patient has is very sensitive and, and feels like the patient is going to leak and is unable to tolerate more, it means that that patient is very sensitive. So patients with a very hypersensitive uh, rectum may actually uh, end up feeling incontinent, not because they they have a problem with their sphincter, but because they cannot contain the rectal contents and they're very sensitive to just a small amount of rectal contents. So that's where rectal sensation is. And then one more thing that we um, is important uh, is to determine uh, the, whether or not there's any problem with the pelvic floor anatomy. And we do this by something called defecography. Defecography, uh, a type of test, either um, an MRI, either using an MRI or using fluoroscopy to see how the rectum actually moves during the act of defecation. So simply put, um, in this in this type of test, there's some contrast that is placed in the rectum. The patient is then asked to try and pass out this contrast, which is gel inside the rectum. And during the act of passing out the gel, either a fluoroscopic image is taken or an MRI is performed to see how the rectum moves. And during this process, we then can see whether there's any prolapse of the rectum and uh, the other pelvic floor organs. So this is called defecography. So those are the, the, the common components that we do. Uh, ultrasound, anorectal physiology, and defecography to determine the cause of incontinence in a patient. So as part of her evaluation, she undergoes colonoscopy, which is normal, and there's mm -hmm. no obvious causes for chronic diarrhea. So mm -hmm. we may ask, what are some of the thought processes when coming up with a treatment strategy, and what are some of the options that are available for patients like herself? Mm. So the the there are two questions here. One is what is the thought process, right? I mean, how do we deal in general with fecal incontinence? And then the second part is what do we do about it to, to treat them? So maybe we talk with the, the, the first part first. Um, how I usually deal with that in my mind is um, there are three circles, okay? One, and these three circles are interlocking circles. The first circle is, is there pelvic floor or pelvic organ prolapse? Second circle is, is there a muscle problem? And third circle, is there a nerve problem? So if you categorize these three areas um, and we try and determine which are the more outstanding problems, which is the more outstanding part that is causing the fecal incontinence, then it's easier to work it out. So these three interlocking circles, as we, uh, they, are, they are not separate. Very often they are, they are interconnected, meaning that a patient who has pelvic organ or pelvic floor prolapse 
often may have some degree of sphincter or muscle problems. They may also have some degree of nerve dysfunction. But we have to identify which we think is the outstanding issue. Then we can deal with that accordingly. So we talk about pelvic floor prolapse. Grossly speaking, if a patient has, say, full thickness rectal prolapse that's causing the incontinence, then that is uh, more likely to be causing the incontinence uh, rather than the sphincter or, or pelvic uh, sphincter weakness or the nerve issue. Then we deal with that. If the patient doesn't have, on the after evaluation, doesn't have a pelvic floor or rectal prolapse problem, and the patient has, uh, we deem the patient to have a sphincter defect, for example, then we try, the our treatment strategies will be then focused on uh, trying to treat or heal or repair that sphincter defect. And uh, if a patient has been, has no sphincter defect and has no prolapse, but um, there might be some degree of nerve weakness that we feel, then uh, treatment strategies are targeted accordingly. So, Second part would be how do we treat such patients with fecal incontinence? Treatment of fecal incontinence uh, would generally always start with non-surgical treatment. So non-surgical treatment would be things like lifestyle, um, exercises or, or physiotherapy, biofeedback, as well as medical therapy. And by far and large, I think I would say 70-80% of patients with fecal incontinence will have some improvement with non-surgical methods. Only if they have failed non-surgical methods, then we go on to discuss surgery if the patient is more symptomatic. And then lies also the patient's background. Like I mentioned before, uh, we, we need to see how affected is this patient by her fecal incontinence. Does, do we need to treat her fecal incontinence so that she gets back to her line dancing, to her, her travel that she does, or, or maybe her life, maybe her occupation depends on her incontinence. Or are we treating her just so that she can get around the house? Okay. So some of the lifestyle or, or non-surgical methods that we start off with will be, we ask them, how runny are your stools? How many times you go to the toilet a day? Um, um, is, if your stools are very runny, and uh, if your baseline number of times that you go to, to, to the toilet a day is like say five or seven times a day, then we want to reduce the number of times you go to the toilet. And we can start with just uh, things like fiber supplements or, or giving them some low-dose uh, anti-diarrhea medications just to bring down that num the, the bowel frequency. And very often patients, just the, the fact that they are not going to the toilet so often they don't leak as often. And if they don't leak as often, they're very happy. So that's one. Uh, second thing would be to ask them uh, to start doing some exercises, what we call biofeedback, to try and strengthen their existing pelvic floor muscles or anal sphincter muscles to regain that strength. Uh, biofeedback and pelvic floor exercises don't actually repair or, or make that, that pelvic floor and anal sphincter 20 years younger but they do enhance and improve that strength and, and uh, at least bring it back to, to prevent further deterioration. And patients, uh, a lot of patients find that with some exercise they, and some degree of improvement, it actually allows them to continue their life without too much disruption and they're happy the way it is. It doesn't mean that their incontinence has resolved or has been solved, 
But as long as they can get back to an improved quality of life and what they are happy doing, um, that might be just good enough for them. Dr. Geraldine, mm. so just wanted, I know we talked a lot about the treatment options, but just want to know what about refractory cases like they don't respond. What do we do about those? Okay. So non if if they don't respond to these um non-surgical treatments, then we have to think firstly, do they have an anatomical problem or do they have a, an issue that can be fixed with surgery? The things that can be fixed with surgery are if they have some degree or, or significant pelvic floor or pelvic organ prolapse. For example, if their the rectum is dropping out of the anus, yes, then that can be fixed with surgery. So that's one. If they have a problem with the anal sphincter, such as a sphincter defect that is causing the incontinence, that can also be fixed with surgery if necessary, called sphincter repair. There is a type of treatment that um, is increasingly popular in the last 10, 20 years, something called sacral neuromodulation. Uh, it's a bit of a handful, but sacral neuromodulation is a treatment that involves stimulating the S3 and S4 nerves in the pelvis to try and improve um, the function of the pelvic floor and the anal sphincters. The truth is we don't really know how this works. Um, how it is done is that there is a little electrode that is placed through, uh, through the sacral spines and it, it contacts the S3 and S4 nerves. Uh, we place it through the nerve foramen nerve specifically. It contacts the S3 and S4 nerves and these electrodes are then connected to a pacemaker, like this, a lot like the heart pacemakers that you all know about. So this pacemaker controls and delivers these low voltages to stimulate the S3 and S4 nerves. And we know by stimulating the S3 and S4 nerves, in some way this inherently improves the, the rectal uh, sensation. And a lot of patients, it improves uh, the way they sense the stools in the rectum and how it how the body senses the, the stools reaching the anal sphincter. So this does not necessarily improve their anal sphincter strength, but it improves their sensation so that they know when they, their stools are going to reach the anus uh, faster. And this gives them more lead time so that they know that when they are going, just before they're going to leap, they know that they are going to want to go to that toilet earlier, if you get what I mean. So when interestingly, we still don't know the exact mechanism. And we know that when we test patients who have had sacral neuromodulation, when we test the manometry test, when we do anal pressure tests, actually there's not much change in the anal pressures before and after we have implanted the, the, the pacemaker or, or started the sacral neuromodulation. That means that there's actually no significant change in the anal pressures, but they can actually sense the stools better and they can reach the toilet faster. And this in uh, in turn, enhances their, their control of stools and they leak less. So this is uh, uh, something that interestingly, so um, it this treatment is very um, much more common in Western societies, in Western populations, and patients are a lot more open to having a pacemaker and electrode stuck through the, the sacrum and stuck in the buttock to improve continence. But interestingly, in Asia, 
Um, for the last 10 years that I've been back since my fellowship, we haven't done many of these uh, procedures because somehow Asian patients are just not so keen on having uh, electrodes put up the bottom uh, or put up the spine and the bottom to improve continence. So maybe this is something that is just very peculiar to an Asian society uh, for, for non-functional for issues. They are not a lot less receptive uh, to procedures like this for functional issues. Thanks so much, Dr. Sherilyn. We've gone through quite a fair bit about fecal incontinence, starting with how we would approach a patient uh, with suspected fecal incontinence, what are some of the risk factors we look out for, how mm. we evaluate a patient, as well as what are some of the treatment strategies, uh, including some of the up-and-coming treatments such as sacral neural modulation. So before we close off this episode, could you share with us some take-home points for our listeners when dealing with a patient with fecal incontinence? Sure. Uh, I think for uh, I think for my juniors, for students, for my uh, junior doctors, uh, important points would be number one: always remember that fecal incontinence um, is a lot more common than we think it is. Don't ignore it when a patient tells us that uh, that they're incontinent. Um, we often ignore it as part and parcel of aging but it significantly affects quality of life and it is treatable. So that's one. Second is, uh, I think, causes can be broadly, the causes of fecal incontinence can be broadly classified as due to posterior compartment prolapse, nerve problems, and muscle problems. So I think that's something that is quite easy to remember. Prolapse, nerve problem, and muscle problem. And then we take it from there. What's the cause? And then we treat them according to these three areas as well prolapse, nerve, muscle. And the last part would be treatment strategies. Um, always start off with non-surgical treatment strategies, including uh, physiotherapy, lifestyle, biofeedback, as well as medical therapy. And then go on, if it's not uh, really resolving, you then go on to surgery, which is dependent on what is the, uh, the underlying cause of the incontinence. So uh, firstly, I'd like to thank Sherilyn for coming on our show um, and providing us with so much insight into this topic of fecal incontinence, something that we often forget if we don't think about. And also for the students who, who join us today, I think we're also grateful that you could uh, take some time off your busy schedule to, to join us. Now, I hope all the listeners enjoyed the, the conversation and learned as much as we did. So do take a look at our Padlet website. Um, if you just Google Linktree, so L-I-N-K-T-R-E-E, -E, and then you type Guts and Glory, it should appear as one of the first set of results. Then you can find show notes, infographics, and important reference articles for our topics. So as mentioned, we are honoured that we are all part of your learning journey. So until next time, everyone, take care and stay safe.